Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And, Victor, we turn our attention today to North Korea, which has been a, a growing concern throughout the early months of the Trump administration. Uh, more and more missile tests with the, the range of those weapons growing on a regular basis. So uh, let me just sort of start you with the basics. Give us some context for this. Where do you place North Korea in the hierarchy of threats to American security? Well, North Korea is the only hostile nation that has nuclear weapons with some likelihood, some, not a lot, but some likelihood they would direct them and use them against the United States because they they feign madness, and by feigning madness, they claim they're immune from the classical laws of deterrence. And so 98% hedge says they're not, but do you want to bet Portland or Seattle or San Francisco on the 2% that they are crazy? So that gives them an edge in a way that we're not commiserately afraid of nuclear Pakistan or China or Russia that are all either rivals or enemies. You have described in a piece that you wrote recently the series of events that led us to this point as 30 years of bipartisan failure. Is is there a common thread to everything that went wrong during those decades, or did different administrations screw this up in different and unique ways? Well, it was dependent on two things. One was usually the Clinton administration and the Obama administration uh, were more gullible. And by that I meant that when they issued sanctions or sanctions were working or they issued veiled threats, then news accounts came out that the North Koreans were flooding into China or they were eating grass or a million people were starving, all of it which was true, but the, or that one of the Kim dynasty had said, okay, that's it, I won't do this anymore, and they gave up. In the case of the Bush administration, they were wise to that, Khan, but they had so much problems in Iraq and Afghanistan that the last thing they wanted was a third front that they were incapable of dealing with. So they ended up by sort of saying, well, Kim backed off, even though they know he, he didn't do it permanently. But they were just had their hands full with two wars. So in different ways, they both let the kick the can down the road. The current administration, Trump administration, comes to power talking about working together with China to get Beijing to exploit its leverage over North Korea. Now, that, that's not a new approach, but there were those who thought that it might play out differently this time insofar as President Trump might have had better bargaining chips by dint of the fact that he talked very tough on China during the campaign. And in the aftermath, just within the last month or two, the president himself has subsequently said that he didn't feel like he was getting anything out of China. But we've just seen in the last few days a U.N. Security Council resolution imposing sanctions on the North. And the fact that it passed, of course, means that it did so with China's support, how, how much optimism should we allow ourselves in light of that development? Some. Um, that was why I wrote a recent op-ed supporting the retention of McMaster and Mattis. I know that they have centrist or even Obama appointees still working for them, but they're professionals. They've been to war, and they understand the threat of North Korea, and they really help the, the Trump administration. And this is a good example of getting Nikki Haley, everybody on board, Tillerson, they go to the U.N., they get the sanctions. And unlike Obama, 
they have a series of escalated steps that are non-conventional that we haven't tried before. And they, you know, we could say that people associated with the Communist Party in China cannot come to the United States or they cannot send their children to West Coast universities or they cannot buy, buy empty homes, which they do all over California. Or we can say that we're going to want to, we're going to have a systematic anti-ballistic missile system in Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Australia that would not only deter North Korea to the extent that it's deterrable, but it would nullify a first-strike strike capability by China, which they would really fear because they wouldn't be able to bully as many people as they do now. And then last and not least, the last step before a war would be allowing South Korea or Japan to make their own decisions about their nuclear capability. And China does not want that. But no other administration has been willing to to imagine those steps that are much tougher than sanctions, but they're all preferable uh, to going to war. So I think we're going to see some of them. So, Victor, Secretary of Defense Mattis, your former Hoover Institution colleague, said earlier this year, I believe in testimony before Congress, that if war were to break out on the Korean Peninsula, we would win, but that the war itself would be his, – his term was catastrophic. Um, walk us through that scenario, Victor. What does that war look like? Well, that would mean that they would send a missile toward Japan or toward the United States, and we would make a split-second decision that this thing is not a warning any longer, that it's got a higher trajectory or it's got a faster speed, so we would shoot it down if we could. And at that point, they would threaten us and either send another one, and this process would be repeated three or four times, or they would start a conventional attack against Seoul, and that would mean five to 10,000 artillery pieces that have ranges of 40 to 50 miles, you know, 200 millimeters and up, rocket attacks. In theory, you know, everything from uh, nerve gas to mustard gas, who knows, sarin gas, uh, and then maybe even flights. And to nullify that that conventional and WND arsenal would probably take two or three days. And it would lead to the destruction, because we would probably fire a nuclear response as well, but it would lead to a destruction of a sizable part of downtown Seoul. So I would imagine you'd lose at least 100,000 South Koreans. But you would destroy North Korea, and you would destroy it to such an extent that you would you would have to have some arrangement with China because China would have an immediate loss of face if they allowed their client to be wiped off the earth, basically, that regime. So they would threaten us. Who knows that in the past, everybody said they'd never intervene. They sent a million soldiers down the Korean Peninsula. But I don't think they would do that, but... Those are the types of nightmarish scenarios that Mattis, I think, was alluding to. If you're a foreign policymaker in the United States, how do you try to account for Kim Jong-un, the, the young dictator there? Because you've got questions about whether he's legitimately a madman or just pretty skilled at feigning being a madman. And you've also got a society that's so closed that good intelligence about this guy is going to be hard to come by. So how does that affect the strategic calculus if you're on the American side? I, I think you can't really speculate 
on the fact that he may or may not be feigning madness. I think what you're, it's wiser to say there's a cadre of ten to 30,000 military, academic, media, government, industrial elites that have, they owe everything to the Kim dynasty. And they understood over the last 70 years that madness is of some advantage in this poker game they keep playing. So when this guy comes along, they probably counsel him. Uh, keep that up, and then at opportune times, back off a little bit, and let's see where this leads to, but don't overplay your hand too much. And so far, he hasn't. So I think that they're on board with him, and there's no tension between the regime and the leader, nor the people don't count because they have no say, and they have no information, and they have no other way of life. So the our only non-military option is to force China to cut off expatriate workers, remittances, uh, coal exports to China from, and cut off all their foreign exchange. And then this time around say, we're going to be absolutely callous to the human suffering that results because the human suffering that results from sanctions that are enforced will be less than the human suffering from a, an all-out war. There have been somewhat mixed signals coming from the administration and simultaneously an open debate going on in the commentariat about whether America's goal in North Korea should be regime change. How do you answer that question? Well, that's the ideal because um, you eliminate the threat for the foreseeable future. But the problem with that is that China apparently is invested in this regime because they find it strategically useful. It's an irritant to the United States. It ties down American commitments in the Korean Peninsula. And what they don't want is a unified North and South Korea that would resemble, say, Germany today. Germany's a good parallel because everybody from Margaret Thatcher to Gorbachev thought that it shouldn't be reunited. And they pleaded that they would, for generations, be so impoverished by taking it up East Germany that they wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a threat. And, of course, just 30 years later, they're in a de facto financial war with uh, the southern Mediterranean EU states, the so-called pigs. They're in a political warfare with... They're in a political warfare with Britain, and they're in a de facto warfare with the Eastern Europe over immigration. So... If that's the model where unification leads, I don't think Japan or Taiwan or even China, especially China, would want it. So final question that I'll put to you. If, if you were a betting man, where would you place your money in terms of where the situation with North Korea stands, say, a, a year from now? Oh, I would say there's a 50% chance it's going to – 50 to 60% chance it's going to be like just like it is now. Threats of war, then back off. But notice that each time this cycle repeats, he gains advantages. So in the long-term strategy, he's better off than he was 10 years ago, and we're worse off because the presence of missiles that can hit the West Coast were very brilliant strategically because what it said was South Korea's interests are no longer synonymous with the United States. And then past they were because they were going to take the hit, and so we deferred to their inclinations. We put up with things like the sunshine policy. But now, should this South Korean government say, you know what, we want to work this out diplomatically, 
we're going to say, sorry, this is a new game because Portland or L.A. is not going to hinge on your, your appeasement policies. So we have bifurcated the United States foreign policy from that of South Korea because we have an existential threat as they do, and each of them are different and seen as different. So that was very smart of what he has done because he can develop that schism and, and widen it. All right. Thanks for listening to the Classicist Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, you can stop by Defining Ideas at hoover.org to read more of Victor's commentary. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.